Bible, and we're just kind of taking a couple, three chapters at a time and working our way from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to pick it up in Ezra chapter 1. I am so excited to get through the Kings and Chronicles. We have been there for a while, and and you know, you kind of trudge your way through all of the mistakes and failures and rebellion and just you look at the Israelites and you think, come on. But then we look at ourselves and we do the same thing. But, but the joy of getting to the book of Ezra is now we get to see not only God's faithfulness to his promise to Israel, but we get to see God pour out grace upon this rebellious group of people who have stumbled and, and fallen time and time again. And, and even to the point where they went into captivity, and now we're going to see the mercy of God bring them out of that captivity and, and bring freedom. And what a, what a blessing it is for us to see that happen even in our own lives today, to see God take a, a, a ragtag group of people and pour out grace and mercy upon them and save us and set us free from captivity. So I'm excited to, to get to this. It's uh, such an important time in the history of the nation of Israel. And, and again, an awesome presentation of the importance of the word of God and, and the promises of God. Uh, God is truly faithful to every prophetic word that is given to his people. And, and you and I can draw comfort and we can draw strength from that understanding. And, and we're, we're going to see how this infallibility that, that God shows uh, in his word to us relates to Israel. But again, how it translates into application into your life and mine. And, and so this, this is one of the things I love about the study of God's word. Not only is it a history lesson, we get to, you know, really look at true history and historical events, but we can also see how what transpired with the Israelites uh, and, and their, um, their relationship with God paints a picture for how we can relate to God even today. And I, I love that. And, and so we, we find that even these chapters written so long ago have such deep meaning to our lives today. And Ezra penned this book during the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, who began his reign in uh, 538 BC and uh, many, many years ago, but still applicable to our life today. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we see them as separate books in, in our canon of scripture, but originally they were one book. It was Ezra and Nehemiah, and it was, it was lumped together in one writing, and uh, Ezra is, is thought to be the author of that. Uh, it was divided in the third century by Christians. Uh, both, again, are believed to uh, be authored by Ezra along with the Chronicles. Remember when we were in Chronicles, most scholars believe Ezra uh, was the author of that. And this we'll see is just a continuation of the narrative that, that Chronicles left for us. And it, it seems to flow in the same writing style. 
And, and so in these first three chapters, and we're going to try to get through three chapters tonight if the wind is behind me instead of in front of me, and we can, we can get through it, uh, we'll get through three chapters. Uh, now in, this, in these three chapters, we're going to see three components of the narrative. We're going to see the release of the captives, that, the end of the Babylonian captivity, and then we're going to see the return of the remnant, a listing of names and groups of people who returned to Jerusalem and Judea. And, and then we're going to see the rebuilding of the temple uh, begin. And, and we're going to see all of that. And what a great work to observe in the text. So let's get started. We'll pick it up in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of, of Cy, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing saying. And, and so right away, God gave Cyrus a sense of urgency about releasing the Israelites from captivity and, uh, and the relief from this exile that, that had taken place was granted the very first year of his reign. Uh, it is important to note here that it says the Lord stirred up his spirit. The Lord was the one who stirred the spirit of King Cyrus. Uh, how, how did the Lord stir his spirit to allow uh, this release of those who, who had been exiled and, and taken uh, captive? Well, it's a great, a great question to set the tone for what we're studying. Many scholars believe that Daniel the prophet uh, came to Cyrus and after studying the prophecies himself that Jeremiah and Isaiah had written uh, about the captivity, that, that Daniel came and he, he spoke with Cyrus to communicate this, this time of prophetic history that was unfolding. And, and so um, many think that it's, it's that confrontation that he had with Daniel that, that enlightened this king and, and woke him up to the fact that God really wanted to move these people back into their, their land. And, and so uh, it came at a time when Daniel began to fast and pray and to seek the Lord himself and to study the, the prophecies of Jeremiah uh, or realizing from the prophets or, or the prophecies of Jeremiah that the, the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had, had spoken about was in fact uh, accomplished already and it was... It was uh, time for the fulfillment of this. And, and it's interesting that this, this came about when he was in his own quiet time praying and, and seeking the Lord and, and making himself available to the Lord to be used by God. And, and uh, just with that desire to be used by God in some way. Man, how, how we can learn from, from that aspect of, of Daniel's character to first of all, spend time with the Lord, but then to open up our heart and say, Lord, I, I want to serve you in, in whatever capacity you would want me to do that. 
Now, check out what Daniel was reading. It's over in Jeremiah 25, uh, verses 8 to 14. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them and and make them an astonishment, a hissing and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take them from the voice of mirth and the voices of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land will be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So that's the prophetic timeline of 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that the the nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation so that I will bring on the land all my words I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. And so Jeremiah lays out this prophecy that we saw in our study of of the Chronicles and Kings. We saw that come to fruition when uh, Nebuchadnezzar took them into captivity and and he he brought the northern kingdom into captivity. And and so um, now in Cyrus's day, Cyrus is the one who this prophecy of punishing the the uh, the Babylonian leader. This was Cyrus's doing. When he came in, he took over uh, and, and conquered Nebuchadnezzar, and and so that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, over in Jeremiah twenty nine, it says this in in verses ten to fourteen. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. And then this very popular verse that we hear quoted all the time. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and I will, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring back, bring you back from your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to a place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And so Again, there's that, that prophetic word that gives the timeline. At the end of that 70 years of captivity, the Lord was going to show grace again and mercy to the Israelites and bring them back into the land. And, and, and there was a promise in there that if they would seek him with all of their heart, that he would in fact fulfill this word and bring them out of captivity in, and back to their land. And so Daniel brings this prophetic word and he brings it to Cyrus to show that the 70 years were completed and fulfillment was found in that that Cyrus overtook 
Babylon and, and dispossess Nebuchadnezzar from his rule. And now, if that wasn't enough to get Cyrus's attention, I mean, that, that would have been enough for me. I mean, if, if Daniel came and laid all that out, it, it, all the timelines would match, and, and the fact that he had overtaken Nebuchadnezzar, all of the dots would be connected. But there was more. Some 150 years earlier, before Cyrus was born, Isaiah the prophet actually named Cyrus in this event. He he named him by name 150 years before he was born. Over in Isaiah chapter 44, the, the last verse of chapter 44 and the first verse of chapter 45, it says, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and, I, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and the te- to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him double doors, so that the gates would not be shut. Now, if, if I were Cyrus... And somebody were reading this to me, and my name was in the prophecy, and those things did in fact happen, that would get my attention. I would say, wow, maybe the Lord wants to set these people free. I mean, that was enough to, to capture his attention. And, and so it gets the attention of Cyrus for sure, and the Lord stirs him in the, into action. So what can we take away from this? What? What can we look at in this first verse of of Ezra and take away? Well, first, we can understand Daniel was making himself available during his own private time, fasting and praying, no doubt. And and, and so we we all could, could draw from that and understand the importance of our own time in the word of God, spending time at the feet of the Lord, seeking him with our whole heart, and making ourselves available and saying, Lord, what is it that you would have me do with my life? And I've told you many times, um, if, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say that Christianity is not a spectator sport. It isn't something we come to church and just watch other people do what they do. It's, it's a, a collective effort that God does through his people. He brings us together and he fits us together as a body of believers so that our gifts complement one another so that we can reach the world for Jesus Christ. It isn't so we can just feel better and pat ourselves on the back. There's a purpose for God bringing us together and equipping us for the work of the ministry. It's so that we will do the work of the ministry. But first, it comes from being available and and making our heart available to the Lord and saying, Lord, Whatever your will is for my life, that is what I want to do. I, I don't want to do my will any longer. I want to I want to submit to your will. And and we see because Daniel was faithful to do that that this whole event starts to unfold. And and so uh, he he's then used mightily as a bonus. I mean, this is a a time that that most think that Daniel actually received the prophetic word that that he laid out for the the end times and, and such a, an awesome prophecy that we study even today and we look forward to those events even today. 
but it all was birthed in this time of sitting before the Lord. Uh, And so uh, Daniel's private devotion led to being used greatly for the kingdom of God and in the the nation of Israel. And folks, this can't be overstated. It can't be said enough. Our quiet time with the Lord is essential. And we, we try to encourage you that on a regular basis. Read through the Bible. Take, take the, the daily manna that we give you every month and just take a portion every day and read through the Bible every year. You, you can read through the whole Bible, reading 15 minutes a day, and, and you can get through the entire Bible in a year. There's so much fruit in our lives when we spend time at the feet of the Lord taking in his word. And, and so uh, making our lives available. We, uh, Andrew Murray said this, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. I love that quote. If, if we'll just yield our life to the Lord, he'll take full responsibility for us. And he'll use our lives in ways that'll blow us away. We'll get to do things we never dreamed we'd get to do because the Lord's empowering our life. And so Daniel influences Cyrus with the word of the Lord. And now Cyrus makes this decree in writing most, mostly a, a duplicate. And this is where we see the connection to Second Chronicles. Um, these, these first uh, three, four verses are, are the end of Second Chronicles. It's just a duplicate of, of that text. Uh, uh, there's, there's just a little more to it here than there was in, in Chronicles. In verse 2, he says, thus says, you're thinking, man, he just got through one verse. There is no way. You stay with me. We're going to get there. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth and the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, all of his people, all his people, uh, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. That's a powerful statement from Cyrus declaring that the God of Israel is God. So obviously the prophetic word being shown to him was enough to wake him up to the reality of who God is. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold and with goods and livestock besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now this, this is a, a remarkable recognition of God's hand upon his life and is most likely connected to those prophecies that I read to you, he realized that God had given him this position as king for this time at this moment to be used in this mighty way to restore these people to the land. I wonder today how many rulers recognize the power of their position and and the authority that has been given to them. You know, they've been put in office by God. In Romans 13, 1, it says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And I was watching an interview with, with Donald Trump last night. 
And that was one of the questions he was asked. Has the weight of the power of this office rested upon you yet? I mean, has it sunk in that if you were elected president, the, the weight of the words that you say, the things that you do, has that settled? And, and I don't think he ever really answered the question. Uh, typical, you know, walk around the, the question. But, but the reality is, is that the people who are in authority are put there by God, and there is an awesome responsibility. Now, he, he's going to use your vote to do it, so don't stay home. You go vote. Um, don't forsake that right or responsibility to vote. But, but ultimately, God's going to put the person he wants into power. And so this begs the question, well, why now? Why, why after 70 years is, is this going to take place? Well, in Leviticus 25... Verses 1 to 4, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, and then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land and a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So every seventh year, the Israelites were supposed to leave the land dormant for that year and and not go out and, and plant the fields and harvest in that seventh year. From King Saul to King Zedekiah was 490 years. Israel failed to keep that Sabbath year for the land. And so for 490 years, there were 70 Sabbaths that they forsook. And so now they were exiled for those 70 years in that land had its Sabbath rest. It, it had what God intended for it to have. And, and so uh, he, he removed them from the land until that Sabbath rest was fulfilled. Now, the, the book of Second Chronicle ends with encouragement to return and rebuild. Unfortunately, only a small percentage of the, the people who could have went back actually went back into the land at this time. Uh, those who did needed an encouragement, and, and so this, this word was an encouragement. This, this written word from the king was an encouragement that they could, they could go back now. The, the 70 years of the, profe- the, the prophetic word was fulfilled, and they could go back into the land. And, and so it's interesting, though, in, in Isaiah's prophecies that he actually prophesied that it would only be a remnant that went. And and Isaiah 10, 22, he says, For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. And so Isaiah prophesied that that only a small portion of the people are actually going to take the king at his word and, and go back into the land. 
And so this brings to my mind when I look at this, how many today will not enter into what God has promised for them? That, that they'll watch other people take hold of the promises of God. They'll, they'll see other people's lives transforming as, as God's spirit does a work in them and a transforming work and, and they begin to live in the promises of God and, and the goodness of God and the mercies of God and, and, and then others will just stand back and they'll watch. Having the same potential, I mean, it's the same God, the same offer to any person that, that is willing to yield their life to him. But, but so many will just stay on the fringe and they'll watch others move in to the promises of God. So many believers today can read God's promises and, and, and yet really never experience them. You know, we, we saw that example with the children of Israel as they were, they were coming to the promised land. They, they could have went in right away. And yet because of their, their lack of trust and faith in the Lord and his promise to them, they, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Two of those adults got to go in because the, their lack of, of trusting God at his word. And, and they missed out on the promise that God had intended for them. Folks, he's given his word to us so that we can put confidence in what he says to us about life, about our Christian life. We can step into these promises in faith, believing him in his word. Uh, we, we also see in this decree the, the beginning of this, this work of rebuilding the, the free will offerings are, are going to be taken. Continuing verse 5, he says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, rose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold and goods and livestock and with precious things besides all that uh, was willing, willingly offered. So, so even though there was a minority group that, that responded and were going back into the land, others did get behind the work and they were, they were you know, taking this free will offering and they were sending supplies and such with them and they they supported the work with silver and gold and goods and livestock and whatever else they thought would help with the project this this was an encouragement to those who were going to forge their way back into Jerusalem to rebuild and it wasn't going to be an easy task you know walking in the promises of God doesn't necessarily mean that the road is going to be easy and and so um, th- there were th- there was a long journey ahead of them. It was a very expensive journey. The, there were no homes to live in. The city was burned down. The temple was uh, in shambles and and wrecked. And and so they needed resources in order to go in and and to start this rebuilding project. And and it wasn't going to be simple. There there were many enemies who were not happy. Well, the fact that the Israelites were coming back into the land, and, and so they were going to have to contend with opposition as they were 
walking into this promise of God, there was going to be opposition coming against them. And, and so, you know, if we're going to paint the picture, we have to paint the picture correctly. We can't just say, hey, you can walk in the promises of God and, you know, you're going to have Cadillacs and gold dust floating down and all the other garbage that's out there. That's not reality. The reality is you, you, can, you can walk in the joy of the Lord and the promises of God, but there's, there's opposition. There's opposing forces out there. And we're going to see that unfold as we work our way through Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll see that there are enemies to contend with in this rebuilding project. And, and so, um, you know, oftentimes the Lord calls us to do something that, that we don't have all of the resources to do. And, and so there's an encouragement when others come alongside and, and you know, help with the project. Now, I just described to you the the sovereignty of God as putting kings in place, and you know there's a there's a sovereign will of God, and uh, and and so you know we saw that in the prophetic word. You know Jeremiah was given the prophecy, Isaiah was given the prophecy that that they were going to go into exile, that they were going to be released, and there was a there was a sovereign move of God taking place, and yet now they go back. And they, they face adversity. And so how does that align with, with the teaching of the sovereignty of God? I mean, is, is it part of God's sovereignty that we would suffer and that, that we would encounter this opposition in our life? I mean, the question usually comes, if, if God is indeed sovereign over everything, then why are things so bad? I mean, why... Why are, are things so difficult at times? You know, I've sat with, with many families who have experienced adversity, some very deep adversity, and, and even losing of a child. I mean, that's about the worst that I can conceive in my mind to have to contend with. And you sit in those situations and and you listen to the the grief and you understand that this whole idea of sovereignty doesn't make sense at those moments doesn't doesn't compute that 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 God has a sovereign will and this was included in it and and so um it, there's there's a very complex issue between man's free will and God's sovereignty and how they they mesh and, and how things come about and how we suffer at the hands of other people. And, and oftentimes tragedy strikes because of neglect of another person, because of their free will. And there's, there's this very complex mix that I don't know that I've ever been able to explain completely adequate. And, and nor would I try at, at one of those times. But the reality is, is God is sovereign. We see that in his word. And man does have free will. We see that in his word. And that Christians do suffer. In fact, Jesus told us we would suffer. So there is suffering a part of the Christian life. And, and so w- without understanding that completely, we can put our faith in a God who does understand it completely. And we can trust him that he is faithful in the midst of whatever 
it is that we have to contend with in this life. Moving along, verse 7. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All the Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so these articles were uh, needed for worship. They were, they were taken first by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and then when Cyrus overtook him, he, he had taken them back when Babylon fell. And, and it's interesting that the Lord knew where all these things were all along. He was never, he was never out of touch with what was going to be necessary when they returned from exile. And so now they're brought back to Israel. They're accounted for. They're going to be used to restore the temple. Now, Sheshbazar was the, he says, the prince of Judah. And this man was an important leader of the, the first part of the, the resettlement of Judah. And some believe that he was a partner of Zerubbabel and others believe that the, the two names were the same person. Uh, oftentimes in scripture, we'll, we'll see somebody that has one name when somebody's referring to him and a different name when somebody else is referring to him. Some of the, the scholars think that, that this is actually Zerubbabel. I can't tell you which one's correct, but it really doesn't matter to the narrative. It doesn't change anything. All right, chapter two. Now, these are the people of the providence who came back from captivity And those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, everyone to a city. And now he's going to begin a list of names of the families and individuals who actually made the return to Judah and Jerusalem. It's a very long list of names. We're going to get through it really quickly because I'm not going to slaughter all of these names. I'm going to let you do that on your own. But first, let's look at verse 2. There's a couple special guys here. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarahiah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rahem, Rahum, Bana, the number of men of the people of Israel. So, if you notice, the first two guys who are listed here, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, we're, we're going to see these guys again. We're going to see uh, Zerubbabel again in Nehemiah. However, if you want to do some homework on your own, you want to kind of catch the whole picture, read uh, the prophet uh, Zechariah and Hosea. If you read those, those two prophets... It'll speak to this time frame. It'll kind of round out the whole picture. Uh, you get a little extra credit for that. I don't know who's going to pay you for it, but but there's extra credit somewhere along the line. Um, but you'll find Zerubbabel and Jeshua have 
a fairly significant role in the, the prophecy of Zechariah and Haggai or Hosea. Read uh, these two prophets and it'll give you that, that better understanding. So now from verses 3 to 35, there's this list of, of people groups who are numbered that, that go uh, in on their own. Verses 36 to 58, this is a list of priests and Levites, temple workers going to Jerusalem. Again, I'm going to let you read those names on your own. Um, however, I do want to just highlight one verse in there. Verse 41, there were 128 singers who went back into the land with that spirit of praise and rejoicing in their hearts and lives. You know, when, when a person is freed from captivity, when the, when the chains are broken and, and we're set free from captivity, there, there's a, a new song that the Lord puts on our heart. And, and there's worship that, that, that arises from, from the rubble. You know, I was, I was never a singer before I got saved. I, I don't remember singing much at all before I became a believer. But I, I love to sing to the Lord. I'd drive my wife crazy. I'd walk around the house humming and singing, and, and you know, it's, it's just the Lord's always doing something cool in my heart, and i got to express it somehow, some way. And, you know, it's, it's a joyful noise. I wouldn't claim it to be worship everybody could sing with, but for me, it's worship. It's worshiping the Lord. You see, I know what the Lord saved me from. I know what he set me free from. I know the captivity that my life was in before I got saved. And because I'm free, there's a, there's a new song in my heart. There's this this desire to worship. And so as they're going back and, and they're, they're going back into the land, we see that there's 128 singers going back in to lead in worship. And then verse 59 to 61 is a list of priests who couldn't be identified by genealogy. And it's interesting because now you get to see the integrity of, or the respect for the law in this case, um, those who had, had lost their family Bible and had no proof of the, the genealogy. Um, that was a joke. Yes, missed that completely. But, but they couldn't prove their genealogy, and so um, they were disqualified from the priesthood because there, there wasn't an accurate record that could be found to identify it. So check it out. In verse 62, it says, these sought their listing among those who are registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult the Urim and Thummim. You remember the Urim and Thummim was something that the priest wore. Uh, we're, we're not exactly sure how it worked. Nobody really knows. Only the priest knew. And it must have been one of those secrets they just kind of put in each other's ear because nobody ever wrote it down. But somehow, when they used the Urim and the Thummim, they were able to determine the will of God. And, and so they would, they would seek the Lord in something, and, and somehow this Urim and Thummim would... would 
show them the answer. And so they were going to wait for that to come back on the scene and for the priests to start using that again to determine if these guys were in fact part of the Levitical line. In verse 64, it says, The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they were they had 200 men and women singers. So again, more singers. And their mules, oh, their horses were 700, in case you needed to know that, and 36... 736, their mules were 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. A lot more donkeys than anything else. Uh, some of the, the heads, I don't know if that was indicated, <laughs> uh, uh, a picture of the Israelites or, or not, but lots of donkeys. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, dwelt in their city and all Israel in their cities. So all these totals are given, uh, including their animals. This is the first group that, that returned to Jerusalem after the captivity, and it numbered just under 50,000 of them. Now, keep in mind, there were several million Israelites. So we can see that it is, in fact, a remnant that went a small portion of people actually believed the Lord and, and stepped out in faith to go and to rebuild, 50,000. And, and so you can see a great majority of them remained in the land of Babylon and, and in other areas other than returning. Also, we, we see that the people gave generously to this, this work as, as, they, as generously as they could they gave to the work of the Lord in this, this project. It showed uh, how highly valued the house of God was to them that they would give to this project. And, and so after two generations in exile, there was again now a presence of, of Israelites in the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, a, what an amazing fulfillment of God's promise to bring Israel back from exile. You know, what it shows us is how faithful God is to his word. Do you realize that God cannot fail at his prophetic word? He, he, can't, he can't get it wrong even once. And so every prophetic word that he has given to us, he's faithful to fulfill just like he did with these people. And it's so important for us to understand that as we, we've talked many times about living in the last days, we see the things lining up. That, that tell us that we're, we're in the, the uh, last days and, and Jesus can come back at any time. We have to understand that with certainty, not maybe, you know, might happen. Maybe. No, with, with certainty, God is faithful to bring this about. Now, will we see it in our lifetime? I hope so. Uh, I know others who wish they would and didn't. 
so we, we can't predict when it's going to happen, but, but we can look at what's happening and we can be excited that we see the, the, the things that are aligning are completely in line with God's prophetic word. And we know he's faithful to his word. We, we see that in this text, in this storyline. We see that, that uh, against all odds, God can move kings to accomplish his will. And, and he does that with Cyrus. And, and these people get to go back in to this promised land. All right, chapter 3. And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, this, this was an important month uh, on the spiritual cal- calendar of Israel. In the seventh month, they, they celebrated the, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and so it was, it was an important month. And they, they gathered together in Jerusalem for these celebrations. In verse 2, he goes on, he says, Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written, in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and in the, and evening burnt offerings. So here again, Zerubbabel and, and, and Jeshua, the leaders of, of this rebuilding project, uh, out of this rubble of destruction that, that was there in, in the temple, there was now an altar built for the sacrifices. What, what's the significance of that being built first? Well, it's, a, it's first of all a beautiful picture of, of the incense of praise that can arise from the rubble of our lives. Uh, that you realize the, the prophetic mission of Jesus. We saw it, it fulfilled in, in Luke when Jesus spoke about himself, but it was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison of those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, and then this, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy in the mor- for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And, and so by, by establishing this altar, we see that the, the fulfillment of, of what, what Jesus was, was going to do in our lives today, that, that transformation of a person, that bringing life out of the ashes, bringing uh, joy from the rubble of, of life. What, what a beautiful picture. And, and so this, this altar is established first, and, and there's a significant reason for that, because sin had to be dealt with. Sin is dealt with at the altar. 
They needed to be able to atone for sin for this rebuilding to begin. First, sin has to be removed. And then we see the beauty from ashes. When, when sin is, is dealt with, then we see how the Lord brings restoration and he, he brings things out of that rubble that we would never believe, that we would never be able to foresee when our lives are bound in sin. But once we're free, man, God can do amazing things. And so they built this altar with the full knowledge now of all the, the surrounding people wanting to come against them. But obedience was more important than what the surrounding people thought. What a, what a great spiritual lesson that is. To, to be obedient to the Lord before we're concerned with what other people would think. We're so people-oriented. I mean, I, I think this is so easy for us to fail at. We so want people to like us. We want people to accept us. We want them to think we're okay. And we're willing to compromise in order for the approval of man. God wants our obedience to him first, to put obedience before popularity, to step into his will, even if it makes other people uncomfortable. Obedience to God is way more important than what people think. Verse four, they also kept the feast of tabernacles. As it is written, they offered the daily burnt offerings and the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterward, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, uh, although the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. And, and so these various offerings, the daily sacrifices um, that were required by the law, plus the free will offerings, they were bringing to the Lord. And, and he goes on in verse 7, they also gave money to the masons, the carpenters, food and drink, oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon, Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permissions that they had from Cyrus. Remember, the cedar logs were from Lebanon were the same ones used when Solomon built the temple. Uh, there, there was something special about these logs. And, and so they, they freed the workers to get the supplies that the king made available. Verse 8, it says, Now in the second month of the second year, they're coming to the house of God of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and Levites, and all those who had come out of captivity to Jerusalem began to work and appoint Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And, and we know that that was... Uh, the age that that the Levitical priests were supposed to start their their work for the Lord. Then Je Jeshua, the, with his sons and brothers, 
Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren and Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son, uh, sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And so, you know, the law gave specific instructions to the the attire that the Levitical priests were were supposed to have. What a what a scene to see the priests dressed up as as this rebuilding begins. And then the singers. In verse eleven, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. He is good for his mercy endures toward Israel, forever toward Israel. And then all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice at the foundation of this temple with their, with the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise and the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So what's happening here? Well, they're singing responsively and and that's kind of what we talked about earlier and you know, when the, when the Lord's doing that new work and he's doing that work in your heart, there's this natural desire to worship him and to express in song the goodness, the mercy of God. And, and so they begin to sing this out. And, and then these, these older people who maybe had seen the original temple began to weep at what they saw in the destruction. The younger people, they were looking at it with a different perspective and they were shouting for joy. And so you have this loud wailing going on and you have this shouting for joy going on. And so what's happening here? Well, there's a difference of perspective between the older generation and the younger generation. Now, we've never seen that happen, right? The younger people shouting for joy, the older people weeping because of what was destroyed. It's an interesting dynamic between the young and the old, and there's this, there's still this clash between the generations. I think, I think it's a per- perpetual clash that goes on between the generations. And you know, if you if you just look at at, at our current society today of of Christianity. You have the millennials who believe that that church is cappuccino and uh, contemplate, contemplative. I can't even say that word. I shouldn't even have tried. Yeah. Real meditating kind of experience. And, and so... Their approach is different than the older generation. The older generation, I mean, we remember the the Jesus movement and, you know, the the times of afterglows and the Holy Spirit moving and, and, 
you know, we, we see that aspect kind of fading out of church life and, and the older people get uh, kind of like curmudgeons, you know, they get all pruned up and they get kind of, you know, what are these young people trying to do to our church life? And, you know, they're bringing all this weird stuff in. And Now, think about it. Back in the Jesus movement, we were the weird ones. The older people that were before us were saying, hey, <laughs> what are these young people trying to do? What, uh, a Christian concert? Are you kidding me? How do you do that on an organ? You know? And, and so there was this clash. So what's the answer? <laughs> I hope you have one. I mean, I, I think the reality is is that, that God puts us together because there's depth in the older saints that the younger saints need, and there's life in the younger saints that the older saints need. And, and somewhere in the midst of that mix, we, we can find the will of God for Calvary Chapel, Apple Valley. I can't be responsible for what happens anywhere else. But but I want to be in the will of God here. And I wanna I wanna know that what we're doing is from the heart of God. And and that young people can participate in that and old people can participate in that and together we can reach a community of people who need Jesus. Because that's really what it's all about. It isn't about what we get out of the service. As much as, as much as we come to church with that attitude and we're like, well, you know, I'll give it a five tonight or whatever, and we, we measure things like that, it isn't about what we get out of it. It's about what the Lord does in us so we can get outside the walls and have an impact on a society that's going to hell. And, and so we need the life of young people and we need the wisdom of old people to mix and and to to come together and and to be a force for Jesus. And I hope I hope that's your prayer. It's mine. That's my daily prayer. And and I I'm one of the old curmudgeons. I understand that. And and so we we have to be open to the Lord and the moving of God in our midst. And in a way, and no, you're not bringing cappuccino in the sanctuary, so don't even ask. <laughs> that's what that concrete floor is for. See, that's the old guy. <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> We're like, no, absolutely not. But sometimes church has to get messy, right? Has to get a little messy so we can get outside of our box and go touch people for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're so blessed to see what you have done in this group of people who were so rebellious to you. And yet you brought freedom to them. Not a freedom they deserved, a freedom that you prophesied into their, into their community. And Lord, I, I pray that we can learn a valuable lesson from our text tonight. Lord, that we can, we can learn that you can take a yielded life and do great things for the kingdom of God. 
Lord, I say I'm willing. I say use me, Lord. I pray that that would be the heart of every individual here tonight. Lord, that we would say use us. Take our broken lives. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And bring beauty from the ashes, Lord. A praise would rise up from our soul. For you are truly worthy of our praise. Thank you for your goodness, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.